Hello friends and welcome to season two of The Membership. Just a quick note here before we get started. First of all, we want to thank all of you, our listeners, for the support you showed us during season one. From the in-person comments we received at the recording of our live first episode, to all of your kind and thoughtful iTunes reviews, social media posts, and emails, the amount of support our fellow members have given us has been wonderful. It's this support that inspires us to continue our work and to want to make the podcast even better in Season 2 and beyond. And we're hoping some of you can help us. While we certainly understand that not all of our fellow members will be able to support us financially, we'd like to ask those of you who are to consider making a monthly donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash membership pod. Your donations will go toward covering the costs associated with the podcast, including website hosting fees, recording equipment, editing help, and travel costs for future interview episodes. And any amount that you can afford to donate will be a huge help, even if it's just a dollar a month. All monthly patrons at the dollar a month level or above will be invited to a private Facebook group where we'll post special updates about upcoming episodes, bonus content, and even share unedited episodes and interviews. So go to patreon.com slash membership pod to pitch in today. friends and welcome to season two episode two of the membership this is john pattison and today i'm very excited to share with you an interview i did over the summer with david klein david klein is an amish farmer and writer he's the editor of farming magazine and the author of several books most recently the round of a country year you may remember david klein and his family if you ever read barbara king solver's book animal vegetable miracle and Klein is also a close personal friend of Wendell Berry. He is mentioned throughout Berry's writing in his nonfiction as well as his poetry. And one poem, Amish Economy, comes immediately to mind. There, Berry writes, We live by mercy if we live. To that we have no fit reply, but working well and giving thanks. Loving God, loving one another, to keep creation's neighborhood. And my friend David Klein told me, It falls strangely on Amish ears, this talk of how you find yourself. We Amish, after all, don't try to find ourselves. We try to lose ourselves. And thus are lost within the found world of sunlight and rain, where fields are green and then are ripe, and the people eat together by the charity of God, who is kind even to those who give no thanks. Mr. Klein graciously welcomed me into his home in Holmes County, Ohio. We recorded the podcast at his dining room table, and we were joined by David's son, Mike. Mike hosts a podcast of his own. It's one of my favorites. It's called Back to the Roots. You can find a link to that in the show notes. After our interview, David and his wife, Elsie, invited me to stay for lunch. Elsie has published a cookbook of wonderful Amish recipes, and so I'll let you imagine just how delicious the food was. Over lunch, we talked about food and farming and books and baseball and theology. And that lunch, as well as the interview with David and Mike Klein, will be cherished memories for me. I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. (music) 
So uh, I'm here and I'm joined by David Klein and his son Mike Klein. Thank you both for being here. This is a real, uh, just a real honor for me. Actually, I've I've read your books. I subscribe to the magazine that we'll talk about, and so just being able to follow your work for a long time and then to actually be sitting in in your dining room is a is is a real a real treat for me. One of the questions that we ask, actually, the question that we ask all of our guests on the podcast is what is we basically what is your Wendellberry origin story? The um, we had fun asking Mary Berry that question. <laughs> she had the, she had the most the most unique. Um, uh, only a couple people can have the same origin story that she had. But um, so I'm curious, like, what is when did you first meet Wendellberry? <clears throat> Um, I would say 1983, 82 or 83, um, we had a, a, a beekeeper, uh, a bee inspector. I, I started beekeeping in 1974, and he was, uh, we were sitting and talking, he said, you need to read Wendellberry's book, uh, The Onsetting of America. And I sent for it, you know, also The Gift of Good Land, which was a collection of his essays. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think this beekeeper told me when Larry will be speaking at Oberlin College. Uh, that was some years later. And uh, I decided to go, my wife and I, Elsie and I went. And we listened to him. And his, I think the topic of his uh, lecture or talk was people, land, and community. Mm. And then afterward, uh, we left and they had a little reception. We got to the edge of town. And, I really would have liked to go to that uh, reception, but I felt uncomfortable. Elsie said, go back. You'll never forgive yourself if you don't. So we went back and had this wonderful conversation with Wendell Berry. And then in about, that was, I'm not saying, maybe 1982, 83, there was a draft horse tour through this community with Morris Tillene from the Draft Horse Journal. Wes Jackson was along, and his son Scott, Wendell Berry, and Dan were along, and they stopped at our farm here. And you probably remember that a little bit, Michael. A little bit. Um, and then from there on, we've always been in uh, in contact. We we exchange uh, ideas and information. We see each other, probably not every year, but quite often. Mm-hmm. All these years, we've been friends. Of course, there was Gene Loxton mm-hmm. and Morris Tallinn and Wes Jackson, sort of the the five of us that were <laughs> bouncing ideas around. Was it? Was it? Mike, in your podcast, I feel like somebody described you as like the five horsemen or something. <laughs> Was it in, yeah. in your podcast? Yeah. The apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. So, the apocalypse, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the apocalypse. <laughs> uh, well, Mary's just been a real, real good friend to our family and Tanya and their children, Dan and Mary. And, the grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So you had one. Of the, I was going to ask if you had read some of his work ahead of time, and it sounds like you had. You had read one or I two had books. Read, mm-hmm. I remember reading that. Suddenly, like, I had so many questions. I was drafted during the Vietnam War and, and worked in the hospital in Cleveland as a conscientious objector for two years. And I would ask many questions, not just on farming, but uh, you know, our religion is Amish. Are we simply just a plain Protestant church? It doesn't really make much sense. And because if we separate our faith from our actions totally. Uh, but I also had a lot of questions on farming. Why do we farm the way we do? And Wendell Berry answered me those questions mm. very, very ably in, in the, 
One was his, his, of course, his essays. But and I had really, I had been reading Wendell Berry in the, the Organic Farming and Gardening magazine. He would write some in there. So the name wasn't totally unfamiliar to me. But once I read down Seligman, I remember reading it at night and underlining it, waking my wife and reading portions to her, and I said, "Listen to this. This now makes sense. Why we farm the way we do?" Yes. Yeah. Uh, to preserve the small farms, preserve the communities, and one Barry helped me tremendously. Mm -hmm. uh, I, my experience reading uh, Barry's work has been that he not only do I learn a lot, but there are, are just have been innumerable times where I feel like he puts into words what I was already feeling and hoping and articulating it better than than I could have myself. Um, and giving me some language and uh, connecting and connecting what I'm feeling to to other communities uh, uh, across distance and across time uh, and that's been been really really wonderful there's obviously a lot of a lot of resonance between what Barry how Barry writes about agriculture what Barry believes about agriculture and practices and how the Amish have historically practiced agriculture and so what do you think some of those places of resonance are? It would be, uh, I would say, on the scale we farm and on the diversity of it uh, is uh, that we have never looked at agriculture as drudgery. Um, that was probably, uh, you know, when it is, uh, as Wendell once told me, there are two words I don't like. One is inevitable, and the other is efficiency and inevitable. Mm -hmm. Is that, uh, you know, for instance, in uh, our small-scale uh, conventional dairy farmers are being, we're losing them because of uh, technology that was never considered good or evil, and that is sex semen. And that allows the huge dairies just to add cow numbers, all they need, and it's the small farmer has no chance. Mm -hmm. Even though he can use sex semen too, we won't help him. He doesn't have the scale. So mm -hmm. um, that is is it, oh, we we just have wonderful conversations uh, on things. And Wendell has this great sense of humor that uh, we laugh a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I I started laughing a moment ago when you mentioned drudgery because um, in in your most recent book, which we'll talk about again in, in here in a little bit, the round of a country year, it's comprised of a series of, of journal entries that tell the, the life of, of uh, one year uh, here on, on your farm. And uh, when I was writing about it uh, for, for my website, I actually wrote about it in terms of drudgery. And I said that it seemed like there, there's very little of what I would describe as drudgery. And I said that certainly, I would imagine that there are tasks here on the farm that you don't enjoy. But my impression is that you and your family are farming at a scale that makes even those chores short-lived. And then this is the, an exact quote um, from what I wrote. I said, can drudgery endure when you love your work and the place where you do it? When you are pursuing an ideal of flourishing that takes into account health and wholeness and holiness and beauty. And when you work from one day to the next, and when your work from one day to the next is varied and done in collaboration with neighbors and friends and nature. 
And when I wrote that, I did not know that I would have a chance to someday interview you. And so I was going to ask, and I had this question written down, was my impression about drudgery correct? It was. It was correct. It depends all the way you look at it. My, my dad, I never, ever remember him saying, oh, I wish we wouldn't have to do this. There was no drudgery in his life at all. But when he was dying, he admitted to me he wasn't really fond of shocking wheat. We'd still cut it with a binder and shock because it was scratchy. But he did it. He never complained. It was only a one-day job. One day out of 365, mm -hmm. you know, that's not drudgery. And you have to help with the family and occasionally neighbors come in and help. And it was, uh, I remember one time we were shocking wheat and we came up over the hill and there were the neighbors coming from the back end of the field. And, and one of the girls said, no, wow, this is life. Yeah. And it's, it's all, it all depends on the way you look at it. Mm -hmm. And we have, uh, sure, there are things that are, uh, might be considered drudgerous, but not really. It's not really. You know, we always say it's worse than sweeping down spider webs, but you know, even that is, isn't too bad. Mm -hmm. It's just a couple hours of the year. Yeah. But I think uh, when I was growing up, I had a list of things that I needed to do chores every day, and Grandpa told me, pick the one you like the least and do that one first. Never leave that till last because it will get worse and worse as the tasks are completed ahead of it. I've never forgotten that one. Yeah. And just do it and get it behind you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can you describe your farm here? Uh, we have 120 acres that we uh, that belongs to. It was bought by my grandfather 101 years ago. That was last year in uh, 1918. Right after, uh, uh, just before the end of World War One, which was uh, that ended in November 1918. And he bought it at Sheriff's Sale. The family had it, hadn't paid tax for about 10 years. He bought it. And the price was fairly high 160 acres. That was the farm was then split. Uh, it was 160 acres for $13,800, which was quite a bit of money in, in 1918. Of course, then the Depression came and prices dropped on it. But it's been in our family ever since. And in all those years, we have never depended on off farm income. Hmm. So it has provided. For the family for 101 years now. Wow. Uh, my uncle lived on it the first year, and I was just telling uh, somebody yesterday that one of the first years he trapped a mus an, enough muskrats here in the creek to pay for the taxes. <laughs> so the taxes must have been fairly low, but it was. Uh, uh, it's been a good place to live. And, you know, I grew up on it. Mike grew up. Our family grew up on it. Walked to the same school. Uh, it was public school until 1960, and then it became, uh, the state decided one-room one room schoolhouse will not uh, give us adequate education, so they wanted to bust us. It's interesting, and I think in 1974, it was 1972, the Yoder versus Wisconsin case in Wisconsin came to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was uh, uh, that we have to go to the age of 16 or through high school, and it was decided. We, we, through eight years and the age, or the age of 14, because of Harry Blackman and Warren Burker were both from Minnesota and they both attended mm -hmm. one room country schools and they saw the value of it. And so it was ruled in our favor mm -hmm. because of those two wonderful men. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, listening to, I'm going to recommend to, to listeners probably a couple of times that they check out 
the Back to the Roots podcast and uh, start with episode one, which was an interview that uh, Mike and his co-host did with, with you, David. Um, I've read several books about the Amish. I've read your books. Um, I learned a lot from that, from episode one that I didn't know. Um, and I'm, so I'm, but there are a couple questions that uh, maybe are going to be repeats because I think it provides some helpful uh, background for our listeners who may not know uh, much about, about the Amish people. Can you give us an overview of, of sort of the, the origins of the Amish in Switzerland and then how they immigrated to the United States? The Amish are, we say we're a part of the, uh, of the Protestant Reformation, which we are probably in a sense, um, goes back to about 1525. And then uh, uh, we're, we're all Swiss. Uh, in, because of religious persecution in Switzerland from the state church, which was reformed, and, and also the Catholic Church. We, uh, our ancestors then left, starting about, oh, after the Thirty Years' War and the Treaty of Westphalia uh, in 1649, they started moving north into the Alsace areas of Germany uh, on the invitation of the lords and the princes who, lo- who owned large estates and needed workers. Mm-hmm. So they moved north there, and, and it's, it's also interesting, in about 70 years they dropped their Swiss dialect and picked up the Alsatian dialect, which is now basically Pennsylvania Dutch. Mm-hmm. And from there, uh, they rented land, and, from, and that's where the, our rotations that we basically follow in America, the, what we call the four or five year rotation of uh, small grain like oats plowed in September, planted the wheat that fall, then the wheat was, you sow timothy with the wheat in the fall, and then the spring in March, sometime overseeded with a legume, clover and alfalfa. And then when the wheat was harvested, that became a hay field, and then the following year it was hay, and then maybe maybe two years hay, and then you spread the barn manure uh, on that field and it was plowed for corn. So it, its highest fertility was for the corn. And then the corn was then followed by oats, and this, this practice is going on for, for centuries more. And so this the, the farming practices that the Amish are known for now essentially were developed. Were developed mm-hmm. in Alsace. And, they, and then brought here. Right, and then that's also where they started growing clover. Uh, the Anabaptists, the Amish are part of the Anabaptists, Mennonites, uh, Hutterites, and, and Amish. And they uh, uh, started growing legumes there. And the, the, the legumes get their nitrogen out of the air free, and this started to increase the, the fertility of the land, and they, they became uh, very prosperous farmers. Of course, they couldn't, most of them couldn't own their land. Mm-hmm. And, but they... Uh, they brought those practices to America on the invitation of William Penn, the Quakers. Mm-hmm. We owe a tremendous debt to the Quakers mm-hmm. because they, uh, William Penn knew of the persecution. He invited them to come into Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And then from, uh, from Pennsylvania, in about, uh, even in the late 1720s, up through what we call the first immigration, it was really not second. In, in, uh, the, uh, the immigration was interrupted by the American Revolution and also the close of the European ports at that time. So from about 1780, I, I'm just guessing here a little bit, to around 1800, there were very few people coming over. And then we uh, are from the second immigration, starting about 1800, came to Pennsylvania and then to Ohio in 1808, to Indiana in about, no, I'm guessing here a little about 1825, Illinois, and then uh, Iowa in 1849. Mm-hmm. 
So the, the and it's interesting to me always that the the Amish came in, and the Mennonites basically went out through the Midwest. They didn't want to have it. Well, of course, New England with with the Puritans mm -hmm. had a tremendous religious intolerance. So they go to New England, and they go to the southern states because of slavery. The Anabaptists mm -hmm. already felt in the 1600s the wrong for one human to own another human. Mm -hmm. So it went through the Midwest and it happened to be the best farmland <laughs> in the United States. So, so they uh, they flourished. And then I, I didn't quite finish that question on our farm. Here. Like we have 120 acres mm -hmm. and we used to milk about 20, 25 cows when Mike was home. Maybe uh, maybe a few more, but we, we set the four year rotation. But eventually, as the layer market, the egg market dropped out, especially hogs dropped out, and it, it came down to mostly dairy. And now, of course, with Organic Valley, uh, the herd size has increased. So that rotation is sort of interrupted with more grass. Mm -hmm. And of course, some are all are all grass now. And but it's uh, uh, I, I still I still think that four or five year rotation is just you can control weeds, you can establish new new hay seeds. It, I think it's still if uh, livestock is our is is our uh, income here. And so we we need to go where we have to make, we can make a living. Mm -hmm. And right now it's it's organic dairy yeah. and some sheep, but but not everybody's a sheep man. But dairy is uh, it's just really nice, mm -hmm. really nice. So and now our our daughter and son-in-law they're doing the farming. I help wherever I can, especially with the hay mowing hay, and I do the corn cultivating, which to me is one of the most enjoyable jobs in the world. Mm -hmm with two rows of cultivating three horses, 75 degree day, <laughs> life doesn't get better. <laughs> Something else I learned from, from Mike's podcast is that maybe contrary to popular conception, not all Amish are farmers, in fact, far from it. Far from it anymore. I think we have, a, every five years we come up with what's called the Ohio Amish Directory which has all, all the churches, all the families, all the children, all their ages, their spouses, everything listed. And of course, our, our uh, work we do. And in, I think in 1975, there were like 70 or 75% of the people were farmers or retired farmers. And that's probably down to 10, 15%. Mm -hmm. Because as our population doubles from seventy five percent to ten to fifteen percent, yeah, it's not that there are fewer farms. There's so many more people. Our population oh. doubles every seventeen and a half years, mm -hmm. so we have fairly large, a very fast growing population. So we just have so many people, and, and there's, there's a limited number of acres available. Yeah. Our community is spreading down into the county south of us. It's hill country. A lot of opportunity to live, not the nicest farms, but they can still have small acreage. They can have their own milk cow and things mm -hmm. like that. And he might, he might have a job somewhere mm -hmm. um, in construction or maybe as a cabinet shop. Okay. But still gives a lot of opportunity to move down there. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Organic Valley. Mike, can you talk about your work with Organic Valley? What Maybe give listeners a, an overview of what the co-op is and what your role is for the, for the co-op. Sure. Um, well, Organic Valley was founded in 1988 by seven farmers in uh, rural Wisconsin, um, and it's now grown where we're nationwide. Uh, we also have uh, beef members in Australia and dairy members in England under the OMSCO Organic Co-op. Um, so I work in central Ohio, uh, right in Amish country here. I've been with them for almost eight years. Um, I kind of lucked into it, I guess. I was out of agriculture for 
from about 21 up until eight years ago. So I was out of, in forestry and uh, had the opportunity to be kind of the field rep for the farmers here. Mm. So I'm kind of the conduit between the farmers and the co-op. And it's a really rewarding job. Uh, you try to help farmers transition to organics, help them through the, the pitfalls and connect them with farmers who are doing something unique uh, that might work. Um, so my job is never the same two days in a row. Uh, no, no drudgery? No, no drudgery. It's just, uh, it's a really rewarding thing to do, uh, to work. You know, I, I have 110 farms or approximately. Um, we've had a lot of farmers actually leave this area and move their dairies to New York uh, for cheaper land prices because land is anywhere from, well, that land just a mile from my house sold uh, at $35,000 an acre the other day and they felt it was really cheap. Mm. So their families that want, the kids want a farm are leaving the area to find cheaper land so they can, you know, have their, give their kids a chance. Um, so my day-to-day -day thing is just going out seeing farmers uh, we do a lot of uh, animal husbandry hmm. uh, on farms to make sure that the animals are taken care of. Uh, that falls under my category of what I do. Hmm. So it's kind of a, it's a wide ranging job. The easiest way to explain it is I'm the field rep for organic valley to the farmer. Yeah. There are a lot of pressures on, maybe on all dairy farmers, but it seems like especially the non-organic dairy farmers, it just feels like they're kind of... I don't know, like from an, as from a non-professional standpoint, it seems like they're um, being taken advantage of. Uh, but maybe that's maybe that's not the right way of putting it. Uh, they, um, but it's but from uh, as a loyal listener to your podcast, I'm hearing stories about farmers who are transitioning to organics, which is good, better for the animals, better for the land, better for the consumer, and better for the farmer th themselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about like what some of those benefits are, like of, of transitioning? Maybe maybe talk about transitioning to organic, but then uh, you know maybe why uh, our listeners should be preferring organic, especially organic well, valley. <laughs> I think when you look at because right now um, we are not adding new farmers to organic valley, mm -hmm. and there's a long list of farmers in this region who have transitioned their land to organics, but there's no organic milk market available because uh, the organic milk market is saturated, same as the conventional market okay. is right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that has a lot to do with market conditions. Uh, Plant-based beverages are being a huge, huge push uh, to get people get away from dairy. Um, you know, I would love to say that farmers transition to organics because they believe in the organic systems plan but in reality is it boils down to money in the beginning uh, they're trying to keep their farms afloat and you can be more profitable and make a living easier in organics so what i've seen is these farmers transition hoping to be viable enough have enough money that the kids take an interest and continue the farm once they're organic for three to five years how that mindset changes is really rewarding and when you look at the organic Dairy in general has to get 30% of the dry matter needs for the cow. Their feed has to come from pasture through the grazing season. Um, so then on our farmers that don't feed any grain, that is a 60% of their diet has to be grass during the grazing season. Uh, and the higher the 
forage levels intake on the cow is, the higher your omega-3s and lower your omega-6 fatty acids are. So just from a health perspective, um, it is healthier. I mean, the tests have proven Washington State did a study on all the different uh, kinds of milk with the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios. Um, the average American diet, I believe, is around 40 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3, and the perfect diet is 1 to 1. Wow. So That's incredible. So, And our, our grass milk mm. is actually a 1 to 1 ratio, where the rest of our milk, I think, is between a 3 and a 4 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3, where the higher grain levels you feed, the higher your omega-6s are because it's an acidic starch feed. But with all with all that being said, organics I think is is healthier for the consumer because it starts at the soil. You've got to work with your soil. You get healthy soil, healthy feed, healthy milk uh, from the animal, and getting them outside, getting them outside on grass. Um, I know pretty much every milk brand out there. Their label has a cow on grass. Yeah, and a lot of those cows only see grass if they look through a window. Yeah. Um, so I, I think obviously I'm biased because I work for Organic Valley and I work in the organic industry. But what's exciting to me is how many farms we transition in this area to the next generation. And whenever we transition, like the farm here, Dad was transitioned to Kevin and Ann. You know, when you see that transition happen, that means something on that farm was viable enough because you won't be a farmer if you can't make a living doing it. So uh, we see a lot, very, very few farms uh, actually sell cows here and there's nobody to take over. Yeah. Um, it, it does happen uh, on the organic side. So I'm really hoping the organic marketplace grows because there's a list of 40 plus farms in the area that are looking for an organic milk market. Yeah. Still, the best way to save the small farm is to make it profitable. Mm. Yeah, you. I was going to ask you about this because you've you've written about what it would take to bring the next generation into farming, and you've described it. I, I believe as almost like romancing, like you have to woo them. Right, right. And and it, it, it's uh, we can only farm so long for the fun of it. It has to. It boils down to profit. Mm-hmm. We have to make a profit that the. Equal to what they can at least do with hourly wages mm-hmm. and more. Uh, so that's why in 1997, we had a meeting here in our farm shop with how many farmers were there? Probably 20. And what can we do to value add to our product? And we decided to go organic. We were already, uh, I would think, organic for years, but we didn't have a market. And there was only one farmer at that time ready to certify, and that would have been Mark Martin. Mark Martin. But he was just a young farmer. But we, about eight of us decided to go for it. And, you know, there was this fairly large wait-and-see group, and there was a huge wait-and-see. This is probably not going to work, but most of those are on. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it can work, and it does work. And it's not just a product you sell. I would say... We want a healthy product here on the farm. In, in our 51 years of marriage, my wife have never bought milk. Um, we've never bought meat chicken. And we've never bought eggs. We've always had them on the farm. So if we want good food, I think whoever buys that should also have the same opportunity. We have to have the very best food available. And it's also the farm is, if you look at the farm, uh, the butterflies, the monarchs, even though the, the milkweeds are organic, you know, and everything, it's, it's, just, it's just a good feeling. Mm-hmm. And when we do, 
do, uh, when we do go to a store, for instance, Rody's Millersburg is a supermarket that has a nice selection of organic products, I never look at the price. Mm -hmm. Somebody worked hard to, to make that organic product available to me, and I'm so happy to pay him for it. I'm glad you mentioned the diversity here on the farm because that's something that really came through so beautifully in the round of a country year. Um, not only the diversity, the, the, the variedness of your work, but just the diverse non-human community on your farm. Um, the, the, the bees and the dragonflies, the all different kinds of birds and, and your other books, you talk about that too, you know, um, uh, uh, letters from Lark Song and Scratching the Woodchuck. You're talking about um, these. They're your neighbors. You know, yeah. they they share your place on earth. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and I was just so struck by that. And I will just say to the listeners that reading the Round of a Country Year changed the way how I pay attention to my own place. Um, we um, we got a rain gauge. You were talking about the rain. We got a rain gauge, put it right outside our sliding back door, and my daughters and I check it in the morning um, and dump it out. My five-year-old loves to dump it out and start over again. Uh, we put up bird feeders, and we start for the first time ever, we kept, uh, we are now keeping a, a bird list of birds that we see both on our property and when we're out and about. We got a pair of binoculars so we can watch close up. And um, we, these are, these are birds that were always there always there but we just never noticed the my we don't get many monarchs where we are um but my 11 year old planted a monarch garden uh this year um because who knows you know just in case <laughs> because i loved reading about the the monarch rescue squad that you do with i think with your grandkids right can you explain what that is and why that so why that's important well we have one granddaughter tim steamy that she goes out she can spot the smallest monarch larvae i've ever seen anybody just like the just the end of a needle and she finds those and whenever if for instance along road sites when the township is ready to mow the mother along the roads or if they have a hate field with some milk in a shield go and rescue those monarchs and bring them in and give them new leaves every day and then until they they pupate in, into a chrysalid and then they hatch and fly away and with uh, uh last year we planted some Tropical milkweed. Uh, I hope it's not a weed, but we had a patch back here in the garden, maybe eight feet around. We had a lot of milkweed. And I stood there and counted 50 monarch larvae on that. And it's just, and they were, uh, there were chrysalids everywhere on the house siding, in the greenhouse, they were everywhere. They crawl out and then they spin. So last year was an excellent monarch year. Wonderful. Uh, I hope this year, I saw the first one uh, May 19th, which was early, and the milkweeds are just now starting to grow, and of course everybody's mowing, roadsides are mowing, and uh, I mean the townships think it's a great idea to get everything manicured, but it's not very uh, monarch friendly to do yeah. it. But, but we, we let them, and I, I notice more and more people when they mow along the roadsides, they do not know, mow the monarch, uh, the milkweeds, the, the milkweeds. Uh, so. um, but our, like I said, our, our, our granddaughter is, uh, she just rescues a lot of them. Yeah, and not long after finishing your book, I read a story about 
the monarch migration in California last year, and I can't remember the the exact percentage, but it, it had a huge dip mm-hmm. from the year before, and so folks are panicking. Um, right, I mean, I mean, I think probably rightly so. Like, and saying like this is something something we really have to do something about. We do it here. I guess our ours fly to Mexico near Mexico City to Sierra Madre Mountains and. Uh, in October, you see, on a stiff, fairly stiff southwest wind, there's a monarch struggling, flying. He's got 2,000 more miles to go. It, it just freaks me out. Will he make it or not? I always wish him Godspeed. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it is, uh, it, I didn't read anywhere where the, our population, it used to be 40 acres of monarchs overwintering. And that dropped down to two acres at its worst, and then it went up to ten acres again. So I, my expectations are last winter was they had more, and I, I hope so. The monarch is such such a beautiful creature, and it's so you know, school children can take in the the larva and they can watch it pupate into a chrysalid and the, hatch out as a beautiful adult and tan his wings and fly away. Do you, this was, the, your book was written as a series of journal entries, and I was curious reading it, because journaling is such a, an important part of like, my spiritual practice, just like even understanding like, what, I, what I think about something, uh, I kind of slipped from journaling into prayer and back again, it's, it's, but it's, so it's very, very important to me. Reading this, I wondered, is journaling something that you always do, um, and is that something that you used to sort of help you keep track of sort of the rhythms of the farm from one season to the next and from one year to the next? It does. I, I must say, I hardly ever go back through them uh, on a yearly basis. I uh, I do, I started when I was drafted and lived in Cleveland for two years. So I started, uh, you know, always kept a little diary, just like plowed, halt manure, you know, things like this, very, very short entries. But then when I lived in Cleveland, the city was such an interesting place. So I, 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 I started writing full pages. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I, I went just to spiral notebooks. So you aren't, you're restricted to one page. You can write four pages if you want to, or you can skip a day. Mm-hmm. And I have skipped years. Mm-hmm. Then yeah. I, I just, and then I start again. Mm-hmm. This is my first time in, uh, well, I'm certainly in Holmes County, but I don't, I don't know if, Amish country. I don't know if that's the right way of describing it. But. Well, everybody calls it that. Okay. Um, and oh, this is nice. Uh, I don't know if we should wait and just kind of let this wait. Thing. talking about grace weren't yeah, we that's beautiful uh, we, uh, we had a visitor here at the uh, we have a, every summer we have a family farm field day and an editor from nova scotia dirk van loon came down here he, he came into can akron canyon airport rented a car and was coming down through kitrin and he met an amish girl with an open bucky and it was a beautiful day a beautiful early july day and she was a nice horse, and she gave this nice smile and wave, and he just pulled off to the side of the road and got us out of this little, little 
book like all journalists carries it style and grace mm. yes yep. I uh, yeah coming in today like seeing sort of the first the first buggy and then another one right after that and all these folks walking along the road um, I thought it was gosh I don't want to I don't want to I don't know I don't want to be, I don't want to, don't want to exaggerate, but it felt uh, like reverential. There was, I just slowed down how fast I, you know, could have been driving or had been driving. I wanted to wave to the folks who were coming, going past me. You know, part of what I'm doing on this trip is I'm visiting all of these neighborhoods where churches are really rooting themselves in their neighborhoods. And I talk about the value of loving your place and walking your neighborhood, and that's what's that's what was going on out there. <laughs> you know? uh, I always said, you know, in the spring the sun moves north about seventy miles a day, hmm. and when I was walking with the uh, plowing with a walking plow, I plowed, walked about seventeen miles a day. I always felt that's just the right pace, yeah. seventeen miles a day. So every, everything is in here Sunday morning when we go to church and we visit a neighboring church, we may leave here at seven o'clock. We, we travel five, six, seven miles, almost no traffic. Mm -hmm. you, you probably won't even pass a single car because all businesses close in these homes. And all, all our little villages, Berlin, Farmerstown, Mount Hope, Walnut Creek, Winesburg, all have and Kittren have no town council, no mayor, and no cop. Mm -hmm. The only place in the United States that is, yeah, because everything we still honor the Sabbath, mm -hmm. which is gets and we have no, the, no alcohol, which <laughs> 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 <It> helps. <laughs> you you talked in the the round of a country year. Uh, well, it's what, what part of what comes through is is this rhythm of life that includes time for rest, rest in the evenings, uh, you know, maybe only doing a half day's work on Saturday, kind of like things around. My then, dad always then, liked to slow down Saturday evening, if we unless we had hay or something really urgent, he would slow down. And I, I practice that, Mike practice it, Tim practice it, our sons-in-law like it. It's slow down and prepare yourself mm -hmm. for the Sabbath, yeah. for Sunday. And we, uh, it's, it's, because it's a day of rest, it's a day of reverence, and it's a day of refreshing. Uh, because um, the body needs rest, and the spirit needs rest. I remember reading in the budget once, that's our sort of weekly, uh, Amish Facebook. <laughs> we had uh, uh, of this man spoke about his dad was a bishop down in the Big Valley in Pennsylvania. He said Sunday afternoons he'd come and we have we serve a new meal in church. This is interesting. To you. You're a believer, and I said every 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 day this community eats about two tons of cheese every Sunday. <laughs> Look at the support we give to the dairy farmers <laughs> and. We have a new meal, but then he said his dad would come home and sit on the porch and just look out over the valley. He said he didn't read or anything. He was just meditating, and then he went on to say, sometimes we're so busy serving the Lord, we don't have time to worship him. Mm -hmm. uh, that was probably 14 years old when I read that. I never forgot it. Mm -hmm. That we have to stop and pause and actually worship the Lord. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah, people need rest. And as, as you and, and Barry have, have, have both written about, the, you, the horses need rest. The land needs rest. Uh, I think Barry wrote somewhere that talking about the Amish um, approach to technology um, that what, one of the benefits of, uh, of uh, oh shoot, how did he put it? Of not using, not having lights on uh, working with the horses is that like you have to stop when, when it's dark. And so you get to rest, the horse gets to rest. I probably yeah. butchered that. But. We, and I say we're at noon. Uh, we unhitch. The horses need water, especially warm days. Right? Then you sit and eat with the family. Yeah. And the horse is such a great regulator of life. Yeah. Uh, we travel to the closest village. Mount Hope is four miles away. Simply uh, time-wise and for comfort of the animal, unless we need to, we have a doctor, or there's no doctor Mount Hope. We have to go to Berlin, which is what, about 78 miles away. Mm. So it, it, it determines our distance of travel, and it also preserves all the small towns. Mm-hmm. Because I think when you look at, at horse agriculture locally, um, if you can get some some people get custom work done with a tractor, but on a dairy farm, if you if you could get all the custom work done, but you've got to haul the manure with horses, that's going to create a size and scale limit on what you can do. And there's also nothing that stimulates the local economy more than an Amish dairy farm or an Amish farmer. That's profitable mm. because they're not buying off Amazon. They're not buying online. They're going to the local hardware, the local equi- implement dealer. They're getting everything local. And it's it's a great stimulant for the local economy. Mm. Mike mentioned to me a few years ago already that he estimated that Organic Valley added $7 million additional dollars to our community with organic milk. So a lot of that $7 million will be used locally. Seven and what's when you say seven million? Do you mean that would above standard price? That would have been all the farmers in my area that I cover. Really, would have stimulated approximately seven million dollars above the conventional that price. That is incredible. Well, we've almost been recording for an hour, but there are just two other things I want to make sure that I get to, if that's okay. Uh, your your wife has written a cookbook, which which I own and which I've cooked out of. Um, I actually live in community. We have three families that live in one home. So there are four generations. Um, and uh, I'm fortunate to live with my wife is a just an amazing cook and loves to cook. One of our, our housemates, a young guy about 25, loves to cook. And so I really don't cook that much. But now, like the last few times I have cooked, I've cooked out of... Um, uh, Elsie's cookbook, uh, which is really, really wonderful. Um, and uh, she is also it is she is also the food writer for Farming she, Magazine, right? Actually, she does a lot in Farming Magazine. She just agreed to be called the food editor, okay. which she is. Mm-hmm. But she does a lot of the other work, too. She does a lot of the typing, and we're, we're very much involved together with that. And then Mike's, uh, Mike's wife, Martha, designs it. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. that's great. Yeah, yeah I, know. I taught her how to design it, and the pupil became significantly <laughs> better than the teacher. And she, remember, we were, what was it called? Uh, Quark? Was yeah, it? Quark 5.0, Quark. I think, and then, was our first. And she, she then switched to InDesign, I think. Mm-hmm. And so, but... 
She's very good at it. So we, uh, Elsie and Martha, once we have everything, the editorial content ready, they put it together in a day. Mm. Wow, the whole issue. <laughs> yes. I used to work on it for a week, and yeah. now Martha does it in 10 hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really wish people would see the amount of work that mom and dad put into making this magazine happen. It's clearly a labor of love. It is, mm -hmm. and we've never taken any salary for it. Mm -hmm. So it's 20 years of, of, I said, it's 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 not a legal nonprofit, it's just a nonprofit. <laughs> but that's because we don't pay ourselves, we can keep the advertising rates reasonable, the subscription rates haven't changed in, in 19 years. Wow. Part of it is to get around to it. Mm -hmm. But it's still, it keeps us above water, mm -hmm. and that's all we care about. And the the tagline is people, land, and community. Yeah. It wasn't isn't Wendell it was, Berry. Yeah, it went, obviously when we were influenced by Wendell Berry, and then in 1947 there was a farm magazine started called The Farm, high quality paper, and the long articles, nothing. They were, they had no sort of restrictions, but the farmers loved it because they didn't write down to the farmers. Mm -hmm. They treated the farmers as if they were intelligent people. The uh, the uh, once a salesman for the successful farming came around to my brother and said, "We write at the fourth grade level, so farmers can understand it." And that is, you pick that up in publication, and that's why the Farm Quarterly was loved by farmers. I, it's uh, you know, reading Gene Lawson and and Wendell Berry, you you know I see oh this this essay or this article first appeared in such and such farming magazine you know and so i feel like the farming publications has been a place where or have been excuse me have been a place where um writers who we may know more from books like we're able to interact with farmers to visit to work out their ideas to get feedback uh, does seem they do seem very very important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a subscriber. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm a subscriber to the Farming Magazine. We don't live on a, on a farm, um, but we love the writing. We love the uh, you know, we garden, and we uh, love what what's what the magazine has to say about about community. We love the the food, and not just. Yeah, I keep saying we because. I typically my housemate Mike gets it before I do, and he he gets up early to go to work, and he usually is reading the magazine over breakfast before he heads oh. off to work. Uh, actually, he works right by Bob's Bob's Red Mill. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, so anyway, it's a, it's we don't have uh, we only keep two magazines like laying around the house, and that's that's one of them. Everything else has to go in the closet if we're going to keep it. But we have a stack of farming magazines. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it to folks. Whether you're a farmer or not. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We, and we we started out as a magazine with the uh, Boys of Hope for small-scale agriculture, and that's why we rented the post office box of Mount Hope. Mm. Farming is always so the farmers can be very negative. They said if, uh, uh, <clears throat> said if they, how is it, if there's a cellar full of farmers, what is it called? It's a wine cellar. <laughs> it's just wine and wine and wine. So we 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 didn't want that, and we didn't want to write uh, uh, as farmers because uh, they actually uh, uh, there was an economist called Peter Drucker. I think it was at Stanford, Austrian immigrant, I think. And my son-in-law was visiting somebody in the hospital, and he picked up the Atlantic Monthly magazine, and, and he had an article in there. Is is. It was comparing the Industrial Revolution with the so-called Information Revolution we have, or the Digital Revolution we have today. And he said the, the Industrial Revolution moved ahead just as fast as this Information Revolution. 
And, and he went on to say in that article that uh, in the United States, <coughs> um, science and technology got all the credit. And I have to mention, now that I think of Michael mentioned animal husbandry, how he hickers. Wendell Berry said the university, or we all suffered when the universities went from the Department of Animal Husbandry to the Department of Animal Science. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the word husbandry is such a nice name. Mm -hmm. It takes in some, but anyhow, uh, there's Peter Drucker went on to say that the, uh, in the United States, all credit was given to the scientists and the technologists and not to the agrarian. And the farmers were called hayseeds, rednecks, uh, you don't have to grovel in the dirt, it's drudgery and all that. Where England did not do that. England gave the status or a lot more status to the agrarian. And as of today, England has no schools of technology, hmm. like MIT or Case Tech. I, 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 I never checked it out, but I assume Peter Drucker knew what he was mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's, it depends on, if, if it's negative, as, as Wendell, I think, said, we have siphoned off a lot of the best and the brightest out of the American agricultural communities for 150 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do some rural community development work for a foundation, big foundation in Oregon. And that is something that we've talked about. We talk about a lot at this foundation, uh, the Ford Family Foundation. You have rural communities where a lot of a lot of kids feel like they're um, I don't know that, that there's there's no reason for them to stay. Yeah. So after high school, they yeah. are going to the city or they're going off to college. And one of the studies that I saw um, said that the number one predictor of whether or not a young person will come back to their rural community after college or after a career transition is whether they were made to feel part of that community as a child. Like, do, do they have a voice? Do they feel a sense of, of ownership and belonging there? And many rural communities don't prioritize that. They're mm -hmm. like they're inadvertently, or maybe not inadvertently, but sort of like kicking them out the door. Like, there's nothing for you here. You need to do better than you me. can do better yeah. by yeah. by going somewhere yeah. and getting a better job, getting a better career than you can do it yeah. locally. And you like hollow out the rural rural communities. Right. Because mm -hmm. yesterday I visited our family doctor or our family doctor, Doctor Dan's son Eric, and we were talking. He said, "Oh, where you went to college and all that." And I said, "Thanks for coming back to this community." Mm -hmm. Said I wouldn't have considered any other. My 11 year old daughter just told me the other day that. Like if she she wants to live in Silverton, our town, like for the rest of her life, and I said, if that if it ends up being that way, like that would make me very very happy. I think Wallace Stegner wrote, "People who move so often finally, uh, and this paints such a nice picture of what's happening is, they move and find that their roots are dragging behind them, completely mm. dried out." Wow, wow, what an uh, image! Yeah, what an image of that is that they have no roots anymore. I'm seeing uh, my oldest son is 23, and his friends who went to college have now graduated. Probably 90% of them are coming back and getting jobs. If they can get it in their field, they're getting them locally. But even some of them are not using the degree, but are coming back. Oh, and still amazing crew. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, they think uh, Holmes County, Amish country is kind of boring, not much to do. Yet, as they grow older, all of a sudden, kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. We, it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, man who left the Amish faith. His dad was Amish, and I just saw him the other day. Well, he stopped in for a visit. He said, uh, you know, I'd like to be buried in the cemetery where my dad is. Hmm. So, 
Yeah, there's always thought of it coming back. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mentioned earlier the misconception that some folks have about how isolated the Amish are. And I contrast that with folks who are pursuing the American dream mm-hmm. and how isolated they make themselves in their, in their houses. They don't know their neighbors. They're not involved in their community. And there's an epidemic of loneliness. Like a former yes. Surgeon General there is actually a- called it an epidemic. That's you. That's good. I was just. I heard somebody speak recently. You know, the suicide rates are higher than they've been for a long time, mm-hmm. and there's uh, loneliness. Is what yes. it is. An epidemic of loneliness. He says that it is. It's the pathology that is behind all of the other. So many of the other illnesses that he sees coming through his office. Now he's practicing uh, as a doctor again. Loneliness is often there in the background. Mm-hmm. So much of it. Yet they probably have a huge amount of social media friends. Yeah, but no exactly. relationships. No relationship. Yeah, there's there's just a difference between an an online friend and a real relationship. Yeah, that interaction, the person to person interaction, is what builds something. Mm-hmm. So, like my friend Al, he had, uh, we put in tiles in Rowland's garden trying to drain it out. It's been so wet the last year, so he forgot his shovel. So I brought his shovel along home and cleaned it and sharpened it and oiled it for him and set him out here at the corner house. So he stops in. I was in the bathroom. So I just opened the bathroom window. We vis- <laughs> visited for half an hour was to the bathroom window. <laughs> Do you want that in the podcast? or? Oh, I, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been a real treat for me. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah. Well, thanks for your work. I, I really do recommend that people check out the Farming Magazine. There are you write uh, a column every issue that I, that's uh, the first thing that I read. There are also voices in there that um, our listeners will, will recognize, like sure. Wendell Berry, Joel Salatin, um, uh, and, and new voices that you'll become familiar with because they write. We have, uh, we have uh, several new voices came in that had no really market for public friends of Smith's Girls with Vegetables, mm-hmm. very good writers, David Buntrigger. Those found their voice in Farming Magazine. I feel if anything, if, uh, if we've accomplished anything, is, is we bring those voices out. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your work, your, your various types of work. Th- thank your wife for me for the work that she does for Farming Magazine. Oh, and you as well. Well, I'm thank really, you. Really grateful. that's it for this episode of the membership. Thank you for listening. A couple quick housekeeping notes. In the next episode, which will be season two, episode three, we will be discussing two of Wendell Berry's short stories, um, A Half Pint of Old Darling and The Lost Bet, both starring Ptolemy Proudfoot, one of our favorite characters here. Uh, Two very uh, wonderful short stories, also quite short So hopefully you'll be able to read along with us. You can find the show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes on our website, membershippod.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, all at membershippod. If you're going to uh, buy a book by Wendell Berry, uh, we recommend that you go through the bookstore at the Berry Center and you can find their new website at barrycenterbookstore.com. 
We'd also like to remind you that we are a member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. You can find more great podcasts at rabbitroom.com slash podcasts. And if you want to support the membership, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash membership pod. It's a lot of websites to remember. We'll put them all in the show notes so you can find them there. Last favor we have is if you wouldn't mind um, leaving a review or rating us on iTunes, that will help uh, our visibility for this podcast and, and help us reach more listeners. Thanks for listening.